Well, go ahead and turn with me, if you will, in, uh, in your Bibles to the book of Philippians, chapter 1, the first chapter there in the book of Philippians. This is our third week in Philippians 1, moving through a new series we started just a couple of weeks ago, uh, all the way through all four chapters in Philippians. That's our goal. And uh, just kind of moving section by section through that book of Scripture. Some of you are familiar with it. Others of you, you've never read it start to finish. This will be a great opportunity for you to be able to do that. So just a powerful book of the New Testament. And uh, Philippians chapter 1 is where we're going to be this morning. <clears throat> so I would say probably aside from whatever sport uh, my kids are playing at the moment, uh, college football is probably one of my absolute favorite sports to be able to watch on television. I love college football. And so if you've ever followed college football at all, then you know there's kind of a unique little arrangement set up with many of the coaches that coach college football teams, similar to the NFL, but I think it's a, a, in some ways significantly different in college. And that would be the contracts that the college coaches have. Just recently, a couple of weeks or so ago, there was a, a pretty high-profile coach in the Midwest that uh, uh, had a poor record over the four years or so that he was there. And so the decision was made for that, from that school to let him go. It basically, they decided to fire him because their team was not doing well. He was under contract, and uh, the specifics of the contract had a buyout clause, meaning that when they fired him, they were required to pay a certain amount out of that contract. And the arrangement that was made was that for the remaining four or five years of his contract, once they fired him, they chose to pay him $15 million to let him go. Now, I encourage you when you go to work tomorrow, sit down with the boss, ask if you can restructure your contract. And uh, because I think you, you see the implications of that over those four years or five or so, through the remainder of his contract, had he won and performed really well, he would have been paid $15 million. Even though he really basically performed poorly, the team didn't do well, they lost, they let him go, he earned $15 million. That's what they call, my friends, a win-win situation, right? Now, no coach wants to lose, and I understand that, especially at that level, when you're at a Power 5 school, you, especially you don't want to lose. No coach wants to do that. No coach wants that you know, on their, on their resume, so to speak. I mean, it is incredibly traumatic to have to uproot your family and, and suddenly begin a job search and all those things. So I don't downplay that at all. But I will say that that is a pretty decent arrangement that whether you win or whether you lose, you win in the end you know, as it comes to that particular contract. You know, for us, we often find ourselves in circumstances that are not going the way we had intended or desired. There are oftentimes for us, even as Christians, where we go through seasons of hardship or difficulty or challenge, even outright suffering, right? And the reason for that is, is because God, when he created this world, he created in, in, in perfection. But when sin came in, Genesis chapter three, for whatever reason, God allowed sin to run its course. He didn't do a do-over. He didn't didn't do a, you know, a remake. He has allowed sin to run its course. And what that means for us is that now for, for us, even as followers of Jesus, we still feel the really hard edges of life, right? Hurricanes that blow through, medical diagnoses that we receive, job-related issues, health-related issues, relational problems, right? All those are still a part of our life. Even as devoted followers of Jesus, we still feel the hard edges of life. And what often happens for us 
And Paul talks about a lot of this in Philippians chapter 1 especially. What often happens, at least for me, and I think you and I are probably a lot alike, that whenever we go through times of difficulty or challenge or hardship, what often happens is we get tunnel vision, right? And, and we start kind of going down the self-pity road, you know, like, woe is me. And we begin to wonder, does God even care? Does God even love me? Does God even know what I'm going through, right? Or, or maybe we kind of play the, the victim mentality at times. And we get this tunnel vision and what happens is we don't see the bigger picture of the fact that God does love us, that God is for us if we're followers of Christ, that, that, that he is with us, and that he does have a, have a purpose that he wants to work out of that trial in which we find ourselves, right? That, that all of that is still true for us as followers of Jesus. And so I'm going to give you two principles this morning, and the first one is this, that for the follower of Christ, we exist in the ultimate win-win situation. If you are a follower of Jesus in your life, no matter the hardship, no matter the challenge, no matter the difficulty, no matter the suffering that you face. Again, I don't try to downplay that. Those hard edges are very difficult at times. Some of you have lost loved ones. Some of you have been through uh, trauma in your life. You've gone through the absolute valley and it was dark there and it was deep, right? So I'm not downplaying that at all. But what I do want to remind us of is that when we go through those challenges and those difficulties in life, whatever they look like, right, that if we are followers of Jesus, that we exist constantly in a win-win situation. Paul's going to unpack what that looks like here in Philippians chapter 1. Now, let me just, let me define what I mean by a follower of Jesus. When we talk about followers of Christ, we're not talking about someone who follows him superficially, right? We're not talking about someone who, who equates following Jesus with just showing up to church, right? That, that's, that's not what we're talking about. When we talk about a follower of Jesus, what we're describing is what the Bible describes as one who's come to that place in their life where they've realized, I've sinned, I've blown it, I'm not holy, I'm not perfect, I need a Savior, and they made the decision, right? The conscious decision. I'm going to move my sin aside. I'm going to turn from it. The Bible calls that repentance. I'm going to push it to the side, and I'm going to begin following a new master, and it's not me. It's going to be Jesus, right? Right? And I'm going to actually even invite him to forgive me of all my sin and take over my life as my Savior and as my Lord. That's what a follower of Jesus is. When a person has made that decision, there is no circumstance in their life, no matter how hard it may be, that they can't say is a win-win circumstance. Because of all the things that Paul is going to point out here, specifically in chapter 1 in Philippians today. Now again, for us, it's really easy to get that tunnel vision, to focus on us and the hurt and the circumstance and to miss the fact that God is at work, that God's bigger than our circumstance. That, that kind of played out for me this week in, in a, very, um, uh, a very minor way, I will say. Uh, whenever I was across town, I think it was Wednesday, and I was, I was headed across town and uh, over near Chatham Parkway, I took some work with me, and it's not uncommon for me at times to just sort of get out of the office, take some work with me because I think a little more clearly, and I'm doing sermon prep or working on some other stuff that need attention. It's just easier than being at my desk, and there's this to do, and this to do, and this to do, and this to do, and some of you can't understand that, but for me, that's just the way I'm wired, okay? And so I had my bag of stuff, and I'm carting off across town. I got somewhere to be on, uh, on the, on, on the uh, out near Chatham Parkway, Parkway. and, and uh, I head into the the, the uh, Victory Drive and Skidaway Starbucks. Got my backpack with me, kind of my Where's Waldo pack, right? I got all my work in there. And I go and get me a, an unhealthy, overpriced cup of coffee and, uh, and, and I'm going to do some work. And so I go in and, uh, 
<laughs> it was absolutely freezing in that place, all right? And uh, absolutely freezing. So I walk in. This is my grumbling moment, I guess. There, there's something to this. And I, so I walk in, and the first thing I realize, it's like 12 degrees in here. Somebody didn't tell them that it's not 95 outside anymore. And uh, so it's freezing. And, and I go at 2 in the afternoon a lot of times after lunchtime because it's easier to find a spot. I mean, who drinks coffee at two o'clock in the afternoon? Well, apparently last Wednesday, all of Savannah did, okay? So there were like hardly any tables there, and, you know, and I've got stuff. I mean, I got my Bible and I got stuff. And it's just, I just make kind of a mess and stuff. So, so I was like, you know what? I've got hypothermia and there's no seat hardly in here. So I'm just going to head all the way back, you know, across town where I'm headed ultimately. And, uh, and I'll just find a spot because I still had an hour and a half or so. And, uh, and so I, I go, I find a, a Dunkin' Donuts, and uh, I was like, this is a blessing, man. This is awesome. So I park the car, get out, go up to the door, pull on the handle, right? It's locked. <clears throat> so it's like, all right, seriously? And so so I, I go across the street because there's a McDonald's. McDonald's, the Golden Arches, oh, right? Always open, right? Pull on the door, they're locked too. Well, I can't do all my work in the, in the Ford truck, right? Because I can't spread out all my stuff. So next door to the McDonald's, I'm out on Highway 17, I think it is, at this point. And, and there is an in-market right next door. In-market, okay? They've got like 14,000 types of coffee inside of in-market. And so I go into in-market and I get my cup. They're open and there are people inside working. So I go inside and at this stage, it's like, I just want coffee. I, I'll, I'll find a way to work in the truck, right? And, uh, and so I put my coffee in there. I hit the button. I make my, my decision of the 18,000 options. And I decide and uh, push the button. And out comes mostly water with a little bit of coffee. I was like, this isn't going to work. So I pour that out. And I go to another machine because you can see the coffee beans on top of the machine, right? So I picked one where, where the, 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 the button was lined up with the little hopper there that had beans in it. I don't know if that really is the way it works or not. And I pushed that button and I chose that one. More water, a little bit of coffee. And, I'm, and here, here's where I'm going with this. Pretty much every single time when I left Starbucks and it was freezing cold, when I left Dunkin' Donuts, when I left McDonald's, and when I left in Market, I'm walking all the way back to the truck, grumbling and fussing and complaining. Doesn't anybody work around here anymore? Why can't they open the building? And are you serious? In Market doesn't even have coffee, right? Grumbling and complaining. Tunnel vision, right? And that is so minor, right? That, that, it's not like my world is going to cave in at that point. I couldn't even handle that well. And yet oftentimes what happens when our world gets rocked in insignificant ways like that, where something we weren't expecting comes, or when we're in the midst of the absolute, the, we're, we're in the storm and the doctor does call or the boss calls us in or whatever happens and everything starts to crumble apart. What often happens is we get this tunnel vision that says, woe is me, there's no way out, God doesn't care, and what am I going to do? I've lost. And what Paul shows us is, in the most significant way, in the most significant of suffering that he faces, he reminds us that as followers of Jesus, we constantly exist in the ultimate win-win situation. And he lays all that out really throughout much of chapter 1 but especially in the passage we're going to see today. So before we jump in in chapter 1, let me just give a little bit of a backstory, just a kind of a little refresher. Paul, the greatest missionary that ever walked this earth, is the one writing the book of Philippians. Now, God wrote it. He inspired Paul. But Paul was the instrument that God used. 
Paul is in prison when he's writing the book of Philippians. He's, as we looked at last week, based on Acts 28, he is chained to a soldier, probably a member of the Praetorian Guard, one of that kind of the elite forces, so to speak, in the Roman infantry. Chained to a soldier, he's in a Roman prison, more than likely, uh, and he's writing this letter to what many would say is his favorite church of any of the ones that he wrote to, the church in Philippi. He's writing to the Christians there, and in the early part of chapter 1, he has shown us the priority of the gospel, that he's even able to almost celebrate in prison because he says, you know what, my chains have translated into the advance of the message of the gospel. And and he, he points at that, and he looks at how God has used his circumstances to push the gospel further down the road. He's in prison, okay? It's not that he can't find coffee or a building that's open. He's in prison. And he's been beaten many, many times at this stage in his, in his ministry. And, and, and he's saying, this is good. This is pushing the gospel further down the road. And then he also reminds us that not only is God part, want, wanting to, to use our lives to further the gospel, but he also wants us to partner with him, God does, so that he can mold and shape us and change us on the inside into the image of Jesus as well. So Paul has already covered those bases earlier in chapter 1. In fact, Last Sunday, one of the things we looked at is how God doesn't delight whenever we go through hardships and difficulties. He he doesn't sit back in a corner of heaven with his arms crossed saying, yep, that's exactly what you deserve. God doesn't delight in that. But what he wants to do is to leverage our hardship and our circumstances, right, so that he can work good out of them to give him glory and to bless us. He doesn't take the hard edges of life away. He wants to leverage them for good. And, And so we get here to, to where Paul is in chapter 1, and, and we're going to pick up today down in verse 19. And what I want to do is I want to read the whole entire passage we're going to look at this morning, verse 19 through 26, and, um, and then I want us to move through a little more slowly and uh, kind of break it down as we go. And so let's, let's jump in here, Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 19, reading down through verse 26. So Paul is writing to the church in Philippi. And he says, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul was all about Jesus being glorified. Verse 21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I'm to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I don't know which to choose, but I'm hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and to be with Christ, for that's very much better, yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. All right, so verse 19, let's, let's read it again. Let's, let's start at the top. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance, Paul says. So as Paul begins to unpack this part of the letter, here's where those who have studied this passage, um, theologians, there, there's a little bit of uncertainty. When Paul talks about his deliverance, you can't quite tell from the context of the letter whether he means his deliverance from prison, right? Which 
most would agree did happen, and then later he would be imprisoned again, and that's where he'd be martyred for the faith. Uh, but most would say he was, he was ultimately set free. But we don't really know. Was Paul talking, was his deliverance talking about his, his release from prison, or was he talking more about him being able to go to heaven? right? His deliverance from this fallen world. It's a little bit hard to tell from the context because he kind of seems like he's talking a little bit about both. On one hand, he's talking about the win of remaining alive and because if he, he, if he stays alive, that's going to be helpful for the Philippian believers. But then he also talks about going to be with Jesus. Look down in verse 22 again. He says, if I'm to live on in the flesh, he says to the Philippian church, this is going to mean fruitful labor for me. And I don't know which to choose. I'm hard-pressed from both directions. Having the desire to depart and to be with Christ, for that's very much better. We're going to come back to that verse in a minute. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. So, so Paul is saying it, it, it's kind of like both. He sees deliverance in both. If God keeps me here and sets me free from this prison, hey, there's going to be a win there. That's going to be good. But if I don't get set free from this prison and they put my head on the chopping block and I'm the next one to go for the sake of the gospel, right? I'm the next martyr. Then Paul says there's a win there as well because I'm going to go straight to be with my Savior, that, that, that was his perspective of win-win. We're going to see in a moment why he had that perspective, how he could have that perspective. But that's what he's talking about. Either way, he says, I win. If you look again in verse 19, though, it's really cool because he mentions the Philippians' prayers. He says, I know this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers. Here's something maybe you didn't know. 70% of the prayers that we see in the Bible, 70% of those are intercessory prayers, meaning it's someone praying for somebody else. Right? We often think about prayer as, God, could you give me this, and God, could you help me with that, and God, could you provide this for my family? 70% of the prayers in the Bible are intercessory, meaning it's one person praying for another. Jesus did this, right? John chapter 17, the high priestly prayer, right? He prayed for you if you're a Christian. I mean, read John 17. That, that, that's him praying for you. <laughs> he was praying for the believers in the first century. He's praying for every other believer after that group that would come. I mean, he, it's him interceding, praying for us. We see intercessory prayer as well, even later here in Paul's letter. Look over in chapter 4, or we see this idea of prayer. We're really praying for anything. Philippians 4, verse 6, he says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything... By prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And again, 70% of the prayers in the Bible, that everything includes praying for somebody else. So it's kind of interesting that Paul points out there that as he's locked up in prison, he has confidence and he has joy in knowing that the brothers and sisters in Philippi are praying for him. But at the same time, if, if you look at the end of verse 20, he says... He knows that Christ will, even now as always, be exalted in his body, whether by life or by death. I mean, for Paul, he was all about God getting glory through his life. I mean, that, that's convicting, right? How, how big of a deal is it to you for God to get glory through your life? How big of a deal is it to you as you raise your kids for God to be glorified in how you do that? How big of a deal is it as you interact with your spouse for God to be glorified of that? How big of a deal is it for you as you operate in the workplace, whether you're CEO, president, boss, or whether you're someone who has a, a specific task and a specific job title, right, that doesn't put you in charge of the whole, the whole thing? How big of a deal is it to you to make sure that God is glorified in how you manage and how you handle yourself in that workplace? How about with your neighbors? How about with your friends? How about on Friday nights? How about when nobody else is looking? How big of a deal is it? 
because for Paul, it was a huge deal <laughs> that God gets glory in my life, right? Even, even if I die, that, that I want that to be a demonstration of God's glory in my life. Right? This, is, this was huge to Paul. So, so how is it that Paul could face hardship like this? This is where we're coming. We're coming to, the, to, to me, the key verse in this passage. How is it that Paul could have this kind of a perspective to where all of life, even locked up in a prison, was win-win? To where he saw the big picture, not just the tunnel vision, where he's the victim, and I don't deserve this, or self-pity, or you know, the woe is me, or where is God? And all. You know, he didn't have that. How could he have the big picture, win-win perspective? I think we see it in verse 21. Look at what verse... 21 says, a simple verse, many of you probably know this. He says, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Again, he'll go on, verse 22 through 24, say, I don't know which one to choose, as though he had a choice. He really didn't, right? Our lives are in God's hands. He said, if I, if I remain, then it's going to be helpful for you Philippians because I'll get to invest in you more. I'll get to push the gospel further. If God calls me home, then, then there's glory in that, right? So how could Paul have that perspective? It's because he understood this principle in verse 21, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, I want you to lock in for these next few minutes because we need to understand what does it mean for us to really say to live is Christ. To begin to see a little bit of that, let's go back to John chapter 6. Flip back there with me. I want you to see this in your Bibles. John chapter 6. We're not talking about the words of Paul now. We're talking about the words of Jesus in John chapter 6. This would be before Paul. In John chapter 6, Jesus is speaking to a group, many of whom were opposed to him. <clears throat> I think he gives us a great picture of what it means to be able to say to live as Christ. John chapter 6, let's begin in verse 49. So Jesus is speaking, and he says, Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven, so that no one may eat of it, or so that one may eat of it and not die. He's talking about himself. Verse 51 I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now let me just pause there. He's speaking in figurative terms. He's not being literal, like, here's my arm, take a bite, right? He's, that, that, he's not being literal. I know we take the Bible literally, but it's, 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 a, it's a literary work, right? There are parts of it that we don't take literally. He's speaking figuratively here. Verse 52, the Jews didn't see this. Then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, how could this man give us his flesh to eat? You know, it just seems weird. Verse 53, so Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. And he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. It's very obvious in the context that he's not speaking literally. <laughs> he's not talking about, hey, let's all become cannibals. That's the way to have a great relationship with God. He's not saying that. It's obvious in the context that he is speaking figuratively. Nowhere else in the Bible do we even see this. The closest we come will, will be in, when we read of the, the Lord's Supper later in the New Testament, when he says, you know, the bread represents his body and the, the, the fruit of the vine, right, represents his blood. That's the closest we get. He's not being literal here, but here's what I think he's doing. He's painting this picture that says, if you want to be a follower of me, 
superficial is not on the agenda, right? If you want to be a follower of me, putting me in a little compartment and taking me out on Sundays is not on the agenda. If you're going to be a follower of me, this is what it's going to look like. It's going to be a relationship that is growing to such a degree that it's as if you are consuming me, right? Your life is consumed with me. You're not con- uh, comfortable and, and uh, uh, satisfied with just being on the surface, right? I got, paid, uh, got saved 30 years ago and haven't really grown since, but I know I'm going to have... No, no, no. That's not the picture. It's not just checking boxes, right? I, I read my Bible today, check that box and go live however I want. He says, no, if you're going to be identified with me, the way this looks is that it's as if you have consumed me, right? That, that, that you have been just absolutely brought so close to me, right? That you are continually growing, in relationship and in maturity. That's what it's going to look like. Paul paints us a picture right out of Philippians. Look in Philippians chapter 3. Again, we're defining what does it mean when Paul says to live as Christ. Philippians chapter 3, we'll get to this passage in a few weeks, but look at verse 7. He says, whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And he lists some of the high points in verse 5 and 6. He says, I count them as loss. Verse 8, more than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, a righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. He asked Jesus, what does it look like to be to, live, to, to say to live as Christ, he would say it's going to look as though you've consumed me, right? Paul, what's it look like to be able to say to live as Christ? He's going to say, just like I said in Philippians, it's going to look like everything else pales in comparison, like it's just a pile of trash compared to the value that I hold in that person's life. Over in, Corin- uh, in Colossians, you don't have to turn there, but Paul in his letter to the Colossian believers says in Colossians 3, verse 2 and 3, he says, set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. This is what it looks like to be able to say to live is Christ. It's, my life is hidden in his life. I, I am, it's as if I've consumed him. I'm identified by him and by him alone. Nothing else comes close to the, to the value of knowing Jesus in my life. That's what it means to say to live is Christ. I mean, it's, it's, it's that clear. Paul could not be any more clear. It's to live and surrender to Jesus. It's to, to surrender everything to him, all that we have, all that we are, everything to him, everything for his glory, that we walk in his love, we walk in his grace, we walk in joy, we walk in peace, right? All of that is wrapped up in, in being able to say to live as Christ. So when you go back then to Philippians chapter 1, the key for Paul to see every circumstance as a win-win is that he was able to say, for to me to live is Christ. If God keeps me here, there is going to be good that comes out of it. To live is Christ and to die, Paul says, is gain. I mean, what does that mean? Well, it's interesting. He gives a little bit of a picture in verse 23. Let's look at verse 23 again. He says, I'm hard-pressed from both directions. I have the desire, he said earlier, 
to remain, right? Because it's going to be fruitful. Verse 23, but I also have the desire to depart and to be with Christ, for that's very much better. That word depart is an interesting word in the Greek language. It's found outside of Scripture in other Greek writings, and it often carried the meaning, kind of a twofold meaning. The Greek word that we translate as depart often meant, in other Greek writings, it meant to break camp, right, as though it was a military detachment. They've set up their, their, their unit, they've set up their camp, it's time to break camp and to move forward, right? That word depart would mean that. But that word depart also in other Greek writings would also refer to a ship that was docked, and whenever they would untie the ship from its moorings, right, from the dock, and it would set sail, it would be this Greek word they would use, depart. That's interesting, right? Because Paul's talking about death. See, the world has no hope when it faces death, because when the world faces death, it's just the end, right? And they try to redefine death in many ways. They try to redefine it. They try to put some, you know, uh, poetic, soft side to it. But at the end, the world without Jesus has no answer for death. It is a harsh finality, right, that brings an end to life as they know it. But from God's perspective, don't miss this, right? From God's perspective, Paul shows us that for the believer, for the follower of Jesus, when our eyes close in death, it's as if we are breaking camp from the confines of this world and going to a place that's better. It's as if we are untying from the trappings of this world and setting sail, not to drift aimlessly, but to go home. (laughs) That's the picture that Paul uses. And, and, And let me point out as well, I'm telling you, man, there's a ton of stuff in Philippians. He also says in verse 23, having the desire to depart and to be with Christ. You see that in there? And to be with Christ. Let me, just, let me just take a second here. Paul says kind of the same thing elsewhere in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 8, where he says to be absent from the body is to be present with Christ. But let me just pause here for a second. Let me, let me, go, let me step, off, step off the trail for just a moment and clarify what often is some really poor perspective outside of the Bible. There, there are some, whenever, um, whenever they look at death, they see it as you know, a person dies and they go into this thing called soul sleep, right? Some of you maybe have heard of that. Certain cult groups believe in soul sleep. You, you die and it says, though you cease to exist for a period of time. Nowhere in the Bible do we see that. Many of you may be even familiar with, uh, with purgatory, right? Teachings on purgatory. This, this belief in a nutshell that, you know what, I, I've still got sins that I still need to pay for, so I'm, when I die, I'm going to go to purgatory for X amount of years, usually some, in, not infinite, but long period of time, and I'm going to work off the rest of my sins in purgatory. Nowhere in the Bible do you see that. It's, nowhere, it's, it's not in there. It's nowhere in there. In fact, what Paul says here, he says, I have a desire to depart and what? To be with Christ. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 8, to be absent from the body is to what? To be present with the Lord, right? It's to be present with Christ. That's the picture. And let me just say that if part of your upbringing was anything to do with when you die, you go to purgatory and you work off the rest of your sins. Listen, that's not grace. 
Sorry, but that's not grace. Jesus said from the cross, it is finished. What on earth was he saying it is finished for if you die and got to go to purgatory to pay off the rest of your sins that are left over, right? He said it's finished. Why? Because when we give our lives to him, it means that our sins are forgiven, washed away as far as the east is from the west, meaning that you as a follower of Jesus can have the hope and the joy that when your life comes to an end, and I hope you're 150 whenever that comes, and I hope you're still jogging every day and rooting for the dogs, right? That's what I hope for you. I hope it's like that for you. But whenever your eyes close in death and God calls you home, let me just say, you're going home, right? You're going to be in his presence and there's no hiatus. There's no work it off period of time. You're going to be with him. And Paul trained to a, or a chain, a chain to a Roman soldier, writing this letter to the Philippian believers without freedom in his own life in many ways, was able to say, I have joy here because I'm in the ultimate win-win. God is filling me on the inside, and I'm still doing ministry, chained to a soldier in a Roman prison. But whenever he says this is done, hey, I'm going home to be with him. No, no real tunnel vision for Paul. I don't know, he was, he was human, so maybe he went through his moments. You know, does God know I'm here? You know, what's going on? I thought I was, you know, had been faithful. Why is this happening? Maybe he went through those seasons, but it doesn't seem like it. It seems like he just knows I can't lose. And man, I don't know what hardship you might be in the midst of today. I don't know for you what your valley looks like. The book of Philippians is, is mainly known for being a book about joy. If you ask most Christians what's Philippians about, oh, it's about joy, and it is. But it's joy in the context, <laughs> at least in chapter 1, of hardship and suffering. And that Paul could say, I have joy here. And I don't know what your, what your hardship is maybe today. I don't, I, don't know, I don't know if it's relational or financial or if it's health-related or, or just something that you're doing business with. It's just pulling you down. I don't know what it might be. And I don't know if you've gotten some of that tunnel vision that's kind of that woe is me, I'm the victim, and self-pity, and does God even love me? I don't know if you've gone down that road. But if you have, let me just encourage you that if you're a follower of Jesus, he knows where you are. Yes, he loves you. He's for you. He's not against you. He's going to leverage good out of the hard that you're in the midst of. And he's even going to use the times that you're in right now, not only to glorify himself, but to bless you. The final principle that we close with, you know, we're going to look at a passage of Scripture as we finish up that to me is just incredibly powerful. But the final principle is that for you, if you're in the midst of hardship, there is real value in waiting for the Lord, just waiting on the Lord. Psalm chapter 25, verses 1 through 3, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Do not let me be ashamed. Do not let my enemies exalt over me. Indeed, none of those who wait for you will be ashamed. Those who deal treacherously without cause will be ashamed. There's value in waiting on the Lord. Theologian Frank Thielman summarizes this passage this way. He says, Paul looks ahead and he comments that death is gain, for it will mean the closest possible union with Christ. In the same way, continued life is fruitful labor because it means that Paul will be able both to preach the gospel and strengthen the Philippians' faith. 
Such a perspective on the hardships of the present and the possibilities of the future is possible for Paul only because Christ lives within him and gives him strength. Hey, in the midst of your hardship, you've got the same hope that Paul did 2,000 years ago. You can have the same joy in this little segment of your journey. It doesn't take away, it doesn't demean or diminish the fact that, that you have real hurt in the midst of your struggle. But don't forget, you are in a win-win situation and always will be because of Jesus. If you've never given your life to him, today he stands ready to take over if you invite him. He already died. He already rose. He's coming back. Now's the time to know him. And right where you sit, you can ask him to forgive and to save. And I promise you he'll do it. Let's pray. Lord, probably scattered all over this room today are different varieties and examples of what it means to struggle and to hurt. And Lord, it is only human. I think every one of us in this room have been guilty of putting the focus on ourselves when we go through those valleys and falling into that trap of self-pity and even questioning whether or not you, you see us and whether or not you care. We've probably all been there in some ways. But Lord, really, we know that you care and we know that you see us and we know that you love us and we know that you have all power and that you're able to work even the harshest of times into good. Lord, when sin came, along with it came suffering. Along with it came consequences. We live in a fallen world with hard edges. And Lord, those, world, th those edges certainly touched you, Jesus, and they touch us as well. But God, we thank you that no matter what we go through, we thank you that you give us hope and you give us joy because we know really we can't lose. Even in the times of hurting, Lord, you are at work, working them for good. And Lord, you're going to bring us through the other side as we wait on you and trust in you. And God, I pray today for those who have a relationship with Christ that feel like they're just really close to just throwing in that towel. They don't know if they're ever going to be happy again. They don't know if they're going to have joy again. They don't know how they're going to make it through this struggle. Lord, just give them faith. Give them strength. Give them encouragement. Get them out of the tunnel vision that they can see that you are a God who is at work, even in their circumstance. And that they truly are more than conquerors through Christ who loves them. That it is truly a win-win. And Lord, for those that have never given their lives to Jesus, Lord, may today be the day right where they sit, where they invite Jesus, God himself, to forgive them of all their sin, to wipe it and wash it away as, the, as far as the east is from the west, and to begin to take over as Savior and Lord of their lives. Thank you that that prayer you always hear and you always accept. Lord, may we live life in a way to where others can see us and say, you know what, for that person, their life is centered on the person of Jesus. Lord, we thank you for all that you do for us. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.